Back up, please. Hello and welcome to Indicast. Uh, today we have with us the Atlanta correspondent of the Economist, who writes on a diverse range of topics like law, criminal justice, Tiger Woods, barbecue, cheating, drugs, democracy, global warming, civil war, gambling, music. Uh, it's a pretty long list. And he's also the author of a New York Times bestseller named uh, The Geographer's Library, and uh, it has been translated in many many languages. His second novel, The Unpossessed City, was published in uh, 2008. He is the father of two young children, one of whom is still a toddler. I'm talking about John Fashman, who's here to talk with us about the American economy, Atlanta, and drugs. Hi, John. It's great to have you here. Hi, Abhishek. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. And thanks for making time. And to be honest, I've never had an introduction that long <laughs> <laughs> for anyone. So tell me, how is it to be covering all these topics? Do you have multiple personalities, split personalities, to be covering, you know, something like barbecue and then the civil war? How does it work? No, I have one personality, but it's an extremely, extremely curious personality. <laughs> And so, learning about all these things, I think, is one of the what makes my job so great. The secret is I don't really know much of anything about anything, but I learn each week a little bit about something I didn't know before, and that's that's what makes my job great. All right. I think we exchanged quite a few emails before we got here, so I think I tagged you as a nomad, and you pretty much like that, don't you, to be a nomad? I do, I do, I do. The traveling is one of the great parts of my beat. You know, before I took this job about a year and a half ago, I had really never been down to the American South, so getting to know it really intimately in the last year and a half has been terrific. Right. So, how do you pick these topics? Do you choose them yourself? So you've got to keep your eyes open for all these cues around you. Yes. Yeah. It's all. I mean, occasionally my boss will ask me to cover something, but it's almost all you know what we call enterprise journalism, where you see something interesting or. Read something interesting, or or talk to someone, and they bring up something you want to look into, and it's just it's just a question of keeping your eyes and ears open and following threads wherever they go. Wow, that's awesome. So let's start with something that you write very frequently on the Economist, and that's about American politics. Mm-hmm. It's been ten years now, and everyone's talking about it since the nine eleven attacks took place. Now, to begin with, where were you back then, back on September tenth and eleventh, because you were in the U.S., so it'll be more relevant for our listeners. Where were you back then? I was actually in New York on September 11th. I was living there and uh, and working there. So the morning of the 11th was a local election in Brooklyn, and I had a drum duty by my parents when I was very young. You could never ever not vote, so I got up early to vote and was at work early. And I remember a guy I work with came in and said, "You know, I just saw something really weird over on the west side. There's a plane flying extremely low over the city." Right. And so I didn't think anything more about it, and then, and then, 15 minutes later, we turned on the TV just in time to see the second plane hit. So then, how do you think was the reaction back then from the Bush administration in the days to come? We've read and heard a lot on television and in the newspapers, but uh, how was it? Immediate reaction as well as the second question is where do we stand today now that it's 10 years down the line? Well, it's hard to separate those two questions. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this as delicately and accurately as possible. I think that the decision to go into Afghanistan, you know, was understandable. The decision to go into Iraq was less so. Um, and I think we're living in a much different country. It's a much poorer country, in large part because of those two wars that haven't been paid for. It's poorer too because I think we've given up a lot of our civil liberties in the name of security and security measures. And I think it's a meaner country because. People thought there would be a huge upswing in, in anti-Muslim violence, and that didn't really happen. There was no wave of violence, but there has been this creeping wave of suspicion 
totally misguided suspicion where you have politicians who think that uh, Sharia law is this unified sort of aggressive doctrine that's coming to take over the United States. And so you have politicians in states where there's actually a very small Muslim population passing laws that courts can never use Sharia in making decisions, which, of course, they never would do, but it's a great vote-getter and rabble-rouser. And I think that sort of coarsening of American life, especially toward Muslim Americans and Muslim immigrants who are and have to be just as welcome here as immigrants from anywhere else, is really one of the saddest legacies of September 11th. Right. But then how short is America's public memory? Because very recently Osama was killed and it was, of course, a big event in the history of uh, post-911. So is Osama's death already forgotten or how much do you think it will help in the in the coming re-election for Obama, because on one hand, America is not doing too well on the jobs front. On the other, two days back, Taliban attacked the U.S. embassy in uh, in Kabul. In Kabul, yeah. Right. Then Hillary Clinton went online and said that uh, uh, we are still committed in having our troops there. So again, everything seems to be interconnected. So where is America at the moment placed? Well, I don't know. I think as far as the next election goes, jobs and the economy are going to figure much more heavily than the war on terror and foreign policy. And I think that speaks to two things. I think it speaks to how sluggish our economy is. You know, the poverty numbers just came out yesterday, and they were they were atrocious. And it also speaks, unfortunately, to the fact that the war on terror and having troops in Afghanistan and the time for the Patriot Act have just become an ingrained part of our natural life. You know, Obama ran against them very strongly in 2008. He ran as a strong supporter of civil liberties. And then he ended up keeping in place many of the planks that he and his supporters thought he was going to get rid of. So there's really no place to run on that for him. I don't see the death of Osama playing a huge part in the coming election, but, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't I don't think so. Right. I guess, in other words, America has more basic problems to solve, and I think Obama just about three or four days back went on television and he unveiled the $447 billion package, which was primarily aimed to bring down job losses. So how has that been perceived? Because the last time when he did that, uh, it cost America some $789 billion. It it failed to create new jobs. Unemployment has risen very palpably from 7.8% at the start of his presidency and then now to 9.1%. So what explains this new bailout, number one, uh, John? Will, Will it really help or is it another like all politicians do even in India, the promises so that they get re-elected. You know, I think we're in a state now with the with the job that there's a lot of sparring back and forth. You know, the president unveiled this bill, but the way the American political system works, it's down to Congress to pass it. So we'll see what happens. There are a number of planks that are, he made a point of saying that there are a number of planks that were supported by both Democrats and Republicans, and that's broadly true, payroll tax cuts in particular. How does that work, if you can help me understand? How, how does a payroll tax cut work? Well, it cuts the taxes that businesses pay on their payroll, which means that workers will see less taxes in their paycheck. Workers will end up getting more money. So that's something Republicans have never met a tax cut they didn't like, and I think this one will end up passing in some form, I'm hopeful. Mm-hmm. I don't think it will be passed in total. I think you'll see planks picked out and passed here and there. Right. A few days back, in fact, uh, Brendan Greeley, uh, I, I know he's a good friend of yours. He now works with yes. the... With the Business Week, he said that uh, the Republicans aren't really playing the game at all. He had written an article on uh, the game theory, and he said that they simply are not cooperating. So is that one big reason why things are not getting done as fast as Obama would like them to? I think that's absolutely true. I mean, and it's not really a question of support, because, of course, they're from two different parties, 
and you would expect the opposition to be hostile. You know, you'd expect during the Bush administration, Democrats in Congress were suspicious of Bush's legislation. So it's not a question of support. It's a question of sort of altering the rules of the game, where what you had, for instance, in this debt ceiling crisis that almost caused us to default, it's a very pro forma thing that presidents have done repeatedly. It's never been made a big deal of. And you saw Republicans willing to essentially hold the country's economic future hostage just to harm Obama. The motivating factor for many Republicans, not all, is this implacable hostility toward Obama, and they will do anything they can to harm him. You know, they are the opposition party, and they want to win the presidency, but it doesn't really work unless there's full faith and credit on both sides of the aisle. And when you have one side deciding that their ultimate goal is to just screw the president however they can, then the institution as a whole is in, is in a lot of trouble. Right. And how strong uh, are the Republicans when it comes to, it is said that in a democracy, it's very important that you have a very strong opposition because yes. it keeps the, the, the ruling party on its toes. So is there any leader from the Republican side who could take Obama head on and have a resume which is as strong as his, especially after, you know, Osama that happened some time back? And of course, Although the employment is on its way down, it's also because the world economy is not doing too well. So is there an opposition at all to take Obama on at the moment? Well, I think heading into 2012, I think both Mitt Romney and Rick Perry, the two Republican frontrunners, will give Obama a lot of trouble, and either of them could very well beat him. Your point about an opposition needing to be strong is extremely important and very well taken, and we need a responsible thoughtful, vigorous Republican Party. I think what we have now is a sort of dug-in Republican Party that puts too much value on dogma, you know, never cut taxes for anything, for any reason. The government can never, ever create jobs, no matter what the evidence says. I think that does the whole country a disservice. And, you know, one of the things that I'm looking forward to, that I'm hopeful for, is that the Republicans will sort of become a bit less dogmatic, a bit more supple, a bit smarter, because we need a strong Republican Party for this country to function. Right. How long do you see uh, the American economy sick? Less than two months back, it got downgraded from Standard mm-hmm. & Poor. How is it out there at the ground level? We read a lot here sitting in India about what's happening there. You live in Atlanta. Now, how, how are the people that you meet? Is there any significant difference in the way they shop, the way they go to, let's say, a Starbucks? Is there any difference or is it too much media? It's interesting. To your first question, was the downgrade really a big deal? I think one of the ironic unintended consequences of the downgrade is that people thought that the downgrade, especially the Tea Party types who were sort of either pushing for or indifferent to a downgrade, thought it would make government less strong, that that was one of the benefits of it. Where in fact, what happened was exactly the opposite, because even after it was downgraded and the stock market started to fall, people rushed to buy U.S. Treasuries because they were still seen as stakes. Right. So in that sense, the downgrade didn't have a, a huge effect on what it was supposed to grade, you know, U.S. Treasuries. They remain strong. Now, the next question, it's what's the mood of America? I My sense is that people are very nervous. Unemployment is up in Atlanta. The housing market was just decimated, so a lot of people are underwater financially. The way the city is set up here, it's hugely sprawling, and there's very little public transport. So when gas prices go up, that affects people's pocketbooks really dramatically because a lot of people work in the city and live in further out suburbs. So the distant suburbs are less expensive, but then when you're driving, you know, an hour and a half or two hours to work every single day and paying for the gas to do that, that really, really adds up quickly. So I think a combination of depressed housing prices and rising gas prices are really, really souring people. 
Right, that's that's quite a deadly combination, isn't it? Yeah. John, let's move to some of the other exciting stuff that you cover, and one of them is, of course, drugs. I could not miss that one. Now, you report on drugs. So how far do you push yourself when you report on such stories? Well, a lot of the reporting I do is uh, is I talk to police, and I write about it from the policy level. Right. I'm trying to think. I haven't done any sort of bust or rehab stories recently. I, myself, am 100% drugs i would never go near them <laughs> you must have heard of you must have heard of method acting though is is method acting justified in journalism that's a great question i mean i often find it puts people at ease and i get much better questions if i hang back i'm not sure i wouldn't call it method acting but i have no problem in an interview being quiet and letting the other person fill in an awkward silence or repeating a question in a way that deliberately seems as though i misunderstand it to get them to clarify it that's interesting because what I thought was, let's say if uh, you're talking to a person who's rolling a joint and if you just join him in, he might just open up a little bit more because <laughs> it becomes your friend suddenly out there. That's funny. I haven't done that yet. I don't do the Hunter Thompson thing. <laughs> <laughs> On a serious note, how bad is the, the prescription drug abuse in, in U.S.? We've uh, seen actors like Heath Ledger, Michael Jackson, another great artists die because of uh, abuse of prescription drugs. It's pretty bad. I mean, I don't have any statistics to hand, but I know that that's one of the areas that are of greatest concern just because it's fairly easy to get them. You know, all you need is a prescription, and you can always find someone like a minimally regulated clinic who will write a prescription for perhaps not the best reasons, and then you can resell them. Ah. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I'm surprised to know that because uh, I thought with all the stringent FDA norms and all the rules that are slapped in countries like the U.S., it might be difficult for you to get a prescription which has, let's say, XMG of Valium, which is uh, harmful. Like we saw in, I think I've seen a movie called The Departed, uh, where Leonardo DiCaprio, he plays a cop who's an undercover agent Uh and he needs to, you know, visit a psychiatrist and uh, it's pretty hard for him to get a prescription there. I felt that's the norm there. It it isn't quite the norm then. No, no. I mean, FDA rules govern what, drugs can come on the market, but once they're on, and it's often a sort of a Wild West atmosphere, you can usually find a prescription if that's what you want. And what, what's the solution? What do you think is the solution to all of this? Is Will arresting the manufacturers or, you know, busting them, like I think Thailand did that some time back, mm-hmm. very uh, infamously, uh, killing quite mm-hmm. a few. What kind of a solution can be employed in a democratic environment in, in America to get this fixed? That's a great question. I'm reluctant to suggest more arrests or more a sort of prohibition-based solution because I think America's drug policies have done enough harm to its populace, especially its minority and, and low-income populace, that you have that treating drugs as a criminal issue rather than a public health issue is really not the way forward, and I'm very glad to see that it's something that we're starting to turn away from. And state after state, you're having measures, for instance, that if you are arrested for a nonviolent drug offense, just possession or possession with intent, you often get sent now to rehab rather than going to jail. And I think that's a great strategy moving forward. I think any solution to any drug problem in America has to really work on the demand side, meaning lowering demand, getting people into rehab especially, because if you have demand, you'll always have supply. And if you go out to the suppliers, the supply will just find another way to get in. And all you end up doing is arresting more people and filling more jails, and that's no good for anybody. Right. John, then what is the proportion of... uh soft drugs to hard drugs, like for instance in places like Amsterdam, marijuana is legal. Uh-huh. Correct me if I'm wrong, there are a few places in the U.S., is that right, where marijuana is legal? Well, there are a few places where marijuana with, for medical purposes is legal. There's no place where it's legal for 
recreational use. It does have some recognized medical benefits. It promotes appetite. It's, you know, good for glaucoma. It's good for chronic pain. Did you say it promotes appetite because I could do with putting on some weight? <laughs> it does promote appetite. Yeah, people use it who are on chemotherapy who find it hard to keep food down. So they'll, they'll uh, smoke before they eat. There is a school of thought that says that, you know, experimenting with soft drugs is all right because if you start putting people behind bars for, you know, experimenting with certain soft drugs which are not exactly harmful like acid and all of that, then it might just encourage kids as an adolescent to do the right thing rather than sneak out and uh, do stuff like meth about which you have also written. So if the government is a bit liberal, and I'm talking about any economy for that matter, mm-hmm. with the kind of drugs on which you are putting a stamp that this is banned, uh, then it might just help. Because if you are allowing kids to smoke a cigarette, then why not stretch the boundary just a little bit? It might just help Afghanistan because the, mm-hmm. their main trade is opium. I mean, I am generally in favor of more liberal drug laws legalizing marijuana, not letting it, anyone buy it, but legalizing it so it's on the level of alcohol where you've got to be a certain age, you can't okay. drive under the influence, there are penalties for letting kids have it. I don't see that as a terribly harmful drug, and I see the benefits both in terms of decreased prosecution, decreased jail time, and increased tax revenue for the government mm-hmm. as more than justifying that decision. On a lighter note, I just hope your kids don't listen to this one, this podcast. Yeah, me too. Me too. I was just thinking that when you started talking about kids, I was thinking, thank God, three years old. I'm not going to have to worry about this for a while. For a while. <laughs> right. <laughs> talking about that, uh, you've also written extensively on the place that you live, and there's a beautiful article. This is for all the listeners out there. Go check it out. Type Atlanta Intelligent Life in Google, and uh, you will get to an article by John. John, tell us about it. How is it in Atlanta, and uh, how has it been so far? It's a wonderful city. You know, as I wrote, when we moved down here, my wife had never been here, and I had come down once to cover one story. Mm-hmm. I always say it's a wonderful place to live, but I would never want to visit here because it's one of these cities that takes a while to open up. You know, you go to New York or San Francisco or something, and there are instantly lots of things to do and things you have to see. That's not the case with this city. One of the things I like most about it is it's because it's fairly inexpensive. Rents are inexpensive. Storefronts are inexpensive. There's a lot of really interesting commerce. I mean, small restaurants, small shops, and people sort of take more risks than they would be able to do in a city like New York or San Francisco where it's more expensive. The area where I live, which is in the city of Atlanta, feels very rural to me. You know, it's, it's not a terribly dense city, which has its drawbacks and its advantages. And, you know, the drawback, obviously, is transport is hard, but the advantage is that you have a lot of space and it's quite quiet. This place sounds so much un-American from what, what I understand from you. It's not crowded, you said. It's not a big city, and that sounds like a fun city to be in with a family then. It's a fun city. There is a downtown part, and, you know, mm-hmm. Atlanta is a hub. The metro area, I think it's a city of about 5 million people if you include the whole metro area, but it really is a collection of small towns sort of next to mm-hmm. each other. In my experience, life tends to revolve around your neighborhood and maybe a couple of neighborhoods over. You get to know people in the very small area. And so it feels like a series of small, connected towns around one major metropolis. And how are your kids holding up to this? Tell us about that incident that you wrote about in in that piece where you took your kid to the grocery store. (laughs) (laughs) They're holding up very well. I mean, my son knows how to to get a cookie when he wants a cookie. He's a shrewd operator for a three-year-old. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yes, for the ones who are wondering what we're talking about, go check that article out. And uh, there, is a, there is a term in Hindi in India which says, uh-huh. uh, which says, Baap pe gaya hai, which means he's gone on his dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> right. 
Right. Well, John, thanks a lot. There are so many more topics that we can talk about, and I think I will bother you again for that. Anytime. This is this is a lot of fun. Call back anytime. Yes, and before we leave, there is a little thing that I have lined up for you. It's it's called the rapid fire round. I've got about five questions that I had asked your friends, Andreas Kluth, Tom Standage, and Daniel Franklin. Mm-hmm. Don't think too much. Just answer the answer the first thing that comes to your mind, like they do on those on those TV shows. All right. Here we go. So tell me, John, if uh, The Economist were a cartoon character, what would it be? Oh, man, that's a great question. Uh, Professor Calculus. Sorry? Professor Calculus from Tintin. Ah, that's great, because Andreas said uh, it would be Tintin himself. And then, ah, okay. And Daniel said Asterix. Huh. In one word, how would you describe The Economist's editorial view of the world? Sensible. As an editor, name one journalistic liberty that you would allow your correspondent if I were to file you a story. One journalistic liberty. Right. I would let you get away with a sort of descriptive, fanciful first sentence or first two sentences. I think a sort of more more literary, gentle introduction to a weighty topic really helps. That's awesome. And uh, tell me on the same count, name one liberty that you would never allow me to get away with. Ah, that's a great question. What would I never allow you to get away with? I don't know if this is a liberty as much as it is a bad habit of opinion writing, uh-huh. but I think mischaracterizing an opponent's argument is a definite no-no. Uh-huh. It makes your article weaker. Can you give me an example? Well, when you, I can't give you a concrete example right now, but I, I think uh-huh. it's a fairly common thing. When you, when you mischaracterize, paraphrase what your opponent says to make his argument sound less than it is, it does you a disservice as a writer and as a thinker, and it does your article and your argument a disservice. Right. you got to win the argument straight up. Got it. And the final question is, uh, what is the biggest kick that you get out of your job? Oh. Is it is it filing a story? Is it is it slipping in a phrase that you always wanted to? What, what is it, the biggest kick in your daily life? You know, I know this is going to sound corny, and it's probably going to affect my salary negotiations, but there's <laughs> nothing I don't like about this job. I mean, I've worked for a lot of newspapers. I've written for a lot of places. Right. Uh, this is the best job I've ever had. I like everything about it. I like my colleagues. I like the travel. I like the process of crafting a story. I like the editorial back and forth. I like the sense of adventure and finding new topics. I really, like I said, it's going to hurt me on the next salary negotiation, <laughs> but I like everything about this. Hold on. You, you said something about editors there. That is your editor. So I'll flip in another one. So anytime something that annoys you when your editor, you know, tweaks your article, anything that annoys you, I know this might also get you into trouble if you say a little too much. But come on, be open if you can. I, have a, I you. will be open. Sure. I'll be open. I have a very good editor. He doesn't mess around with my copy too much. He, when he does, it's usually for the best. He's smart. He's open. He's, uh, he's a great person to work for. That's awesome. I think that's something that Brendan Greeley, who, again, who used to work with The Economist, he said that I think he's met one of the best people, good human beings at The Economist. They're good human beings first and then everything follows. That's absolutely true. Thanks, John, for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And all you listeners out there, please uh, log on to theindicast.com and leave your comments there. And next time, John, I will definitely call you back to talk about two of your books one of which I'm reading right now, The Geographer's uh, Library. And hopefully you will join us back to talk about that too. I'd love that. I hope you keep liking the book. Yes, thanks a lot. <laughs>